Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I think him taking such a hands-on approach leads a little bit more insight into to his his mindset, especially at towards the end of the, the war itself. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Justin McHenry talking about the Varick transcripts. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Justin McHenry, and he'll be discussing the Varick transcripts and the important role they played in preserving the wartime documents of General George Washington. One thing that astounds me still to this day is the sheer amount of correspondence George Washington had to deal with as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. He didn't have email or alerts or text messaging. These had to be written by hand. Now, of course, they weren't written by him. He had a whole selection of people whose only job it was to write letters on his behalf. But it's an amazing and important endeavor nevertheless. And as a historian today and all of us who research the American Revolution, we're grateful for his efforts. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Justin McHenry. Justin McHenry, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you, Brady, for having me back. Tell us about your background. Okay. Well, I am currently the university archivist at American Public University Systems. It's an online university based in Charlestown, West Virginia. And um, my background before that was I got a, my bachelor's in history from Shepherd University, and then I went on to get my master's in history from West Virginia University, concentrating mostly in West Virginia history. So that's a good, good fit there. Um, and then, so I've been working as an archivist for much of the past decade. And so, and during that time, I've been kind of a writer and a historian on top of that. So I just enjoy finding interesting stories and diving into them, researching them and trying to tell them and bring them, bring them to the public. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, it's, it's kind of twofold, I, I think, um, First off, being a, an archivist and working a lot in records management kind of has left me predisposed to finding stories about papers and the kind of the minutia of how things operate. I find that all very interesting. Um, and so I wrote an article that I believe was published last year, early last year, by the, um, the Journal of the American Revolution on the, the very personal rivalry between two doctors at the head of the, the medical department of the Continental Army. Um, John Morgan and William Shippen. And so, and it was their battles with one another it got so vitriolic that it was brought in front of the eyes of Washington, who had to kind of intercede in the matter. And so that got me thinking, got me traveling down a, a bit of a rabbit hole, looking into what other kind of like personnel matters or other types of like minutia 
was was um, George Washington was dealing with on a, like a day to day basis, and um, and it kind of gets you like got me thinking outside of like what you typically think of what a commanding general does, and so this led me to Washington's aides and the jobs that they were doing, and from there it was on to Richard Barrick and, and the job he did as one of um, George Washington's aides. Talk about Washington's daily correspondence during the American Revolution. So he had a, a, a I think it was mostly um, a handful of aides at any one time working with him. And so it was a lot more extensive than what I thought it was beforehand. And it's not just kind of what you think is like sending orders out to, you know, the major, the major um, military leaders under him and letters to and from other kind of prominent revolutionary figures. But it's an, an, an any number of other kind of documents. Um, and even those letters themselves can be up to like four or five pages long that they're sending out. And the orders can be very, very extensive. And so you have this kind of um, machine going on at the, at the headquarters of just producing, you know, copious amounts of records. So there's lots of what you don't think of like financial records. And so keeping daily logs and daily, um, um, you know, sheets of all of the, the fine, the expenses that, that, that they were going through and the distribution of stores and ammunition and other material material. Um, and then like I, like I went through for personnel disputes, like the ones between Morgan and Shippen, but also any sort of dispute dealing with either missing pay or, you know, overlooked pr- promotions uh, from, you know, lesser down um, military leaders. There's also letters being written to any number of minor local political figures as well. So wherever, wherever they happen to be, they would be in constant contact with the, you know, uh, down to the county and town level um, kind of officials. And so there's just a lot of paperwork going back and forth. And um, it, it got so much that they were, they were, at the beginning, they were trying to keep a, a like a, um, a log book of everything. But then it got sloppier and sloppier and sloppier. And I think that's where part of the, um, the problem came, in, came to be. Why did he decide that his letters needed to be preserved? Okay, well, it really wasn't until the spring of 1781 that George Washington decided to take the step to organize and to also tran- transcribe and ultimately preserve his, his wartime papers. So earlier in the war, after the, he evacuated the army from New York City and the army went into retreat into New Jersey, um, that, that close call kind of um, got him thinking. And so he felt it necessary to, to box up and send his papers to the Continental Congress for safekeeping in Philadelphia. Um, and after they, they went to, to Philadelphia, of course, they, um, the Continental Congress had to uh, abandon Philadelphia and move further into, into Pennsylvania. And so his records went with them. And so they kind of got lost in the shuffle for a few years. Um, in the meantime, though, they were still creating more and more records. And every time his headquarters moved, those records were being boxed up and moved along with them. And so you have almost dozens and dozens of large crates of just his personal records moving from from headquarters to headquarters. Um, And so the material was being, you know, kind of disorganized as 
letters and orders and any number of others were being pulled out and cross-referenced and not really being filed back anyway properly. It just became a jumbled mess that they couldn't really utilize fully anymore. And so it was in that spring of 81 that he, he like it became like a, a bridge too far and it, things he was like it became too disorganized for him so he he went took the step to um to look to have them have someone come in and and help him out and transcribe them and organize them for him how did he decide to pursue this new action yeah so he he came to the realization that something needed to be done and so the mess would became too great so he reached out to congress to kind of he had it in his mind he he needed a new aide because all of his current aides working with him, um, the Hamiltons and, and, and everybody else there, um, they were all, all, all too busy. They all had too much stuff on their plate already as it is. Um, and so he, he needed a, a, someone new to come in. And so, and so he reached out to Congress to kind of have them um, approve a new hire basically. And so they trickily approved, the request and gave gave him permission to go out and hire a new aide and also with that a team of writers to, to help that new person um, organize and transcribe all of his records and so what I find fascinating is that at the same time this was going on while he was reaching out to Congress and seeking out that approval to hire uh, someone this is when he decided to start a wartime diary so he had gone nearly six years at this point, not recording his daily thoughts, but, but um, at the same time, like he was getting his papers in orders. He thought it, um, he thought it um, necessary to, like, to start, oh, maybe I should start, um, you know, recording my, my um, daily thoughts. And so it kind of all falls under the same umbrella for me. So I think it's all part of him trying to preserve his legacy in, in some respects. Who was Varric and why was he chosen? Yeah, so he, he was an interesting he was an interesting guy. Um, so it's Richard Varick. He was a young lawyer from from New York um, who listed very early in the Continental Services, um, and he served first as a personal aide to General Philip Schuyler. I think um, as a young lawyer in New York City, him and him and Schuyler kind of um, crossed paths a few times, and so that's what kind of got him into his his circle there and so he followed him and you know to the Canada campaign and would serve under under him for a few years there and they would also have a few other positions I think he served as the deputy muster master um, of the northern department um, and then following Schuyler's um, Schuyler's um, resigning his command um, I think in late or in 1779 that kind of left Varick without a position. And so he returned back to his law career in, in New York City. And then and then it was during that time when he had when he was kind of a, a law in his his service, he um he was approached by Benedict Arnold to become his aide de camp at West Point. And so he took he took Arnold up on that position. And so and this he would only serve Arnold for um, as his aide for about three months because that is when his treason was discovered and so he was all mixed up in that whole um, rigmarole there um, and so as part of um, Arnold's treason he 
uh, Farrakh demanded a court martial to to clear his name, and so he used his training as a lawyer to to gain his acquittal of having no knowledge of Arnold shenanigans. Um, and then, sort of after the court martial, he was he was back at not having anything to do for for six months, and he, I think he was also looking for um, some sort of redemption too, because I mean that left a, a sour taste in his mouth, at least I believe, being being a part of. Um, so close to to Arnold, and so um, so it was six six months later that um, George Washington came calling to offer him the position, and he kind of readily accepted it. What sort of challenges did Varick face? Well, that it, it's very very fascinating because um, there was a lot. Of, the the job itself was a lot of. He spent a lot of time organizing and indexing and coming up with um, naming conventions and numbering conventions, a lot of stuff that actual, you know, modern archivists do today. Um, and so that, that all was fascinating. And it, it was, it's funny reading through his letters to Washington and to other, other people around Washington, him, him complaining about, man, this, this is taking uh, a lot more time than, than what I imagined it would. And so, <laughs> and that's, that's any archival job. It's, it's always a lot. A lot more involved than what what you think it is, but but the kind of the funny thing is, the most most of the challenges were um, kind of personnel based, right? And it wasn't so much of the work itself. It, it just the, the work itself took um, just so much time, um, but it was the personnel side that kind of gave him the the most most fits. Um, but he 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 did a. He, he did a good job. So he would discover missing records or gaps, and he would reach out and try to to find those papers. He would be reaching out to um, different members of Congress, asking for for uh, a copy of, of this letter, or writing to a state official, writing asking for a copy of, of this and that. And so he was very very thorough in his in his approach. Um, but it was it was funny. The, the real problems lied in either finding people to accept the job or as transcribers or what they called writers or dealing with the, the complaints of those who were, or were working. And so, and I think the, 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 one of the, the biggest challenges was finding people because like letter after letter, you would, you, people would um, turn them down and saying like, this is like the most um, God awful job there was. And so it, and people were referring it to as a siege, um, siege work. And it was, the most daunting task and 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 all of the things, um, and so it was. It's kind of funny to see people's reasoning for um, not taking the job, um, but when they did take it, there was there was like constant grousing over over everybody, uh, mostly over money and supplies. Um, they were con- he was constantly they were constantly complaining to Varick, and Varick was constantly complaining to Washington, who had to write to Congress to to get get them paid eventually so he had basically you know middle manager problems that he was dealing with um and also hours too it was funny because it's you're you're dealing with the the 18th century here and so they he wants he wants everybody to put in eight solid hours of work but um depending on the time of year that was more difficult than other times of years because of the, the lighting situation because you're sitting there trying to do, trying to transcribe, you know, maybe poorly written 
letters or orders or whatnot. You need good lighting, good sun, you know, daylight coming in. And so people are complaining about, well, it's, it's too dark in the mornings and I can't get in here early enough or it's, it gets too dark um, too soon. And so I can't do this. And you also have people complaining about the thickness of paper and the, the books that they were using. And so he would have to write back to Washington and say, um, can we get center sheets of paper? And so, and also like, um, some of them, a, a couple of the, the people were, the writers were, um, ex, ex soldiers. And so, and some of them were, seemed to be suffering from PTSD, like, like um, um, afflictions, and so he was having to deal with them and and and, and the problems that that those arise from them. So it was it was kind of an interesting sort of challenges that they that he was coming up against. In your opinion, how effective was Varick at this job? I think he did an excellent job. Um, so he was not imagining not only managing the work, but but the people themselves. It was a large job that ultimately took two and a half years, but. Um, he got it done and he, like, like when he was discovering the, the missing records and stuff like that, he was being very proactive and, and reaching out and, and trying to, to fill those gaps. And, and so that, that shows the, the seriousness with, with which he took the, the position. Um, and then like a hundred, I think it was, um, John Fitzpatrick, who was the, I think, coordinator of the Washington papers at the library of Congress. And it was, he was writing about 150 years later and he was, comparing the original documents to the Varick transcripts. And he was, he was saying there was just minor spelling and, and punctuation differences. And most of those were just, um, well, there was no standardized spelling or punctuation basically at the time. And so that's where, that's where most of the, the, the differences kind of, of it. So they were doing an excellent job and he was doing an excellent job too, because he was QCing all of the work um, going on and sort of providing feedback and, and comment and he was he was he was there in the thick of it um for that for the whole span of two and a half years and so yeah he, he i think he did an excellent job talk about the debt that modern historians owe to his efforts those researching the time period yeah so um so what he him and his team created was like a safety net for history how, how i like to thank it think about it um it's kind of a, a constant that has always been there to use because uh, a number of the original documents have like, not made their way down through history. I know um, in the years following Washington's death, many, many, um, uh, many historians or writers um, um, would come to Mount Vernon or who, whoever um, inherited his papers, and they would, they would take kind of piecemeal um, records for their own projects that they're using. Um, they would snipe a record here and there and, and they, they, some of those records never came back or they would take whole sections of it. And then, you know, when they get back, they'll be all disorganized or some haven't made it back. Um, um, I think the, the chief justice, um, John Marshall was writing a history on, on Washington. And they said when he, they received whatever records he took back, there was a lot of mice damage to them. And so, and that's why I think it shows the importance of something of the Varick transcripts. It, it just has that um, something you can always go back to just in case a, a document or record hasn't been, hasn't made it back. But because of, of Varick's work, we have that knowledge and it gives us a, a fuller picture of the period and, and of the war. 
How does this article help us to understand the American Revolutionary Era better? Well, um, I think it was just a, a I, I see it as a remarkable undertaking, really, of, of, of kind of um, recognizing the importance of the records and being active and, and preserving them at the time. And so knowing, like just having that forethought of knowing the, their benefit for history and, and taking the steps to ensure uh, future Americans and students of history have, have this knowledge. I think that's, that's kind of um, something I, I, I haven't really thought about too much before getting into the very transcripts and having, and knowing the, this revolutionary era and the, the people were thinking of the time and thinking of the future, but thinking of the, I think the distant future as well. And so that forethought is just another kind of wrinkle that is, has, thrown in there for me and also George Washington's involvement throughout the whole process. Um, I think him taking such a hands-on approach leads a little bit more insight into to his, his mindset, especially at towards the end of the, the war itself. And maybe he was in a, uh, a more contemplative place where he was like wanting to, to, to preserve his, his place in history and his, his involvement in the war. Justin McHenry, thanks again. Hey, thank you, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.